yo, 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 yo. <laughs> Hello, everybody. <laughs> Welcome to the first episode of season three of God in Film. We are super excited to be back. Welcome to God in Film, the podcast where a Christian and an atheist dive into the best that Sinra has to offer and see if we can find any elements that have any parallels with the gospel or any other Bible stories. I'm media coordinator and fixed point in space and time, Giles Goff. <laughs> and I'm photographer and rogue time agent, Phil Coleman. And just to let you know, we'll be doing things a little different this season. So as you know, we love films, but we also love other forms of media, music, comics, books, games and TV. So for this little mini season of God in Film, we're going to look at TV shows that have parallels with gospel. Any other, any other Bible stories? Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, we also weren't going to bother to change the name because that's more hassle than it's worth. Yeah. So without further ado, have your sonic screwdrivers at the ready. <clears throat> oh, I don't have one. Of the, I've gone a minute. I've got a TARDIS somewhere. I've got three sonic screwdrivers. Do you want to borrow one of mine? Yeah, I'll, I'll just reach through the, through the okay, laptop this, screen and grab it. This will be your Thank one. You. This will be my Thank one. Thank you. And this is your one. I can do a cracking impression of the TARDIS. <laughs> that is uncanny. Go. Thank you. <laughs> I'm very pleased with that. So, without further ado, we have our sonic screwdrivers at the ready as we hop into the TARDIS and explore all of space and time in search of biblical parallels in Doctor Who. So, hey! let's get the cont- to this one. <laughs> I know, right? So let's get the contentious stuff out of the way. Phil, who is your doctor? Oh, that's hard because mm-hmm. I'm I'm a really big fan of quite a f- well quite a few of the newest ones because I didn't really watch it sort of like when it was back in the 60s to the 80s. But I've got to say, and I think this might be because he's just as northern as me, he's got to be Christopher Eccleston because yeah. the way that he characterises the Doctor, he has this like, you know, he's he's still he's got this wonder and he's got this magnificence about him, but he's also troubled and, and torn apart inside. And you see that in equal measures with him and it sort of comes and goes like a, a bit like a seesaw with his emotions. And it's just so great to see. Plus, Chris Eccleston could just act the crap out of anything. So and crucially, crucially, Chris Eccleston had one thing that the earlier doctors didn't have, a leather jacket. Okay. Yes. If yes. you were if you were sort of I was born in eighty three, so I was very, very young when Classic Doctor Who went off the air. So if you just have this vague image of your head in your head of somebody dressed like a Technicolor pillock saving the universe, it kind of puts you off a little bit. Yeah, Whereas like, if you can save the universe wearing a good leather jacket, it's like, okay, I'm on board, you know? Yeah, you don't want someone wearing what looks like a patchwork blanket being like, hey, I'm here to save the world. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you'd just, you'd just be like, are you sure? Because <laughs> I don't know if you are. <laughs> for me, this is a tricky one. For Obviously, for years, it was it was David Tennant, the 10th Doctor. Mm. Um, there was a, a, a sort of BBC red button interactive game called Attack of the Grask, which actually hooked me that. into to uh to the doctor like there's this brilliant bit at the end of it where he just says well you know that was i mean for your first time you did pretty brilliantly actually and i was like oh <laughs> thank you i like the 10th doctor for the way he makes me feel about myself but if i'm <laughs> honest probably the 11th doctor uh, Matt Smith's he, he's also the only the only yeah. um, Doctor Who actor I've actually met Stephen Moffat said that the, the 11th Doctor was if a group of old men tried to create a young man from memory and you can sort of see that <laughs> you can see where they were going with that yeah you can with the, you can, the you tweed can jacket and everything you may have other favourite Doctors and we definitely want to hear about those but in the meantime let's have 
Phil's Facts. Oh, it's good to be back, isn't it? So, Doctor yes, Who is. is a British science fiction television programme broadcast by BBC One since 1963. Uh, the programme depicts the adventures of a time log called the Doctor, an extraterrestrial being who explores mm-hmm. the universe in a time-travelling spaceship called the TARDIS. Uh, the show is a significant part of British pop culture and is listed in the Guinness World Records as the longest-running science fiction television show in the world, which yeah, is nothing sorry. to be sniffed at. Now... I did, uh, obviously, there's quite a lot of trivia to go through when it comes to Doctor Who. So, uh, without further ado, here's the first one. Mm -hmm. At first, the estate of the late Terry Nation refused permission for Daleks to be used in the show when they rebooted it. Uh, Nation held the copyright over the Daleks as the man who wrote the first Dalek serial. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons they refused permission was because of the BBC granting permission for the Daleks to be used in Looney Tunes Back in Action from 2003. <laughs> now, I don't know if you've seen the clip where the Daleks are in it, but it's a bit wasted, Not like great, in my opinion. Yeah. There was a, a comic relief crossover where Doctor Who turned up in EastEnders so so, they've not always curated the image and likeness of the Doctor super well, you know. They've they've, they've not. All, they've sometimes dropped the ball. Terry Nation getting the sort of the the right to be recognised and sort of paid royalties for creating the Daleks was quite a sort of fairly new thing at the time. I think it was yeah. organised by his his agent Beryl Virtue and. Mm-hmm. You might recognise the name Beryl Virtue because she's she was like she went from being like an agent to like an executive producer in a lot of things, okay. and she is crucially Stephen Moffat's mother-in-law. So every time Stephen Moffat wanted to use the Daleks in a in a storyline, <laughs> go to his like, mother-in-law, oh, and it's. And it's more expensive because I have to shell it out because you were a really good agent. Thank you. you know? I mean, so I've got to, I've got to hand it to her. That is a really good way to make money for life, isn't it? <laughs> you know, you see that you gangster. see that niche. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty brilliant. So, mm-hmm. Hugh Grant was once approached to play the Doctor. He turned down the role, thinking the show would not take off. And he expressed deep regret in 2007 after seeing how successful the show had become. However... He had played the Doctor in a comic relief Doctor Who, um, The Curse of Fatal Death in 1999. So he sort of got a little bit of a chance. Have you seen that? No, you know what? It's always eluded me that. And I'm I'm wondering if it's on YouTube. It is on uh, YouTube. Check it out. Sorry, it's got like Hugh Yeah, Rowan Atkinson plays. Rowan Atkinson. It's got Richard E. Grant in it as well, hasn't it? Everyone and their mother is in it. Rowan Atkinson plays the Doctor in it. And he he kind of dies several times over. So (laughs) so Hugh Grant is the Doctor for like a minute and a half. But I tell you what, seeing Hugh Grant as the Doctor will make you go up a notch on the Kinsey scale. You know, he has this (laughs) moment where he says, look after the universe for me. I've put a lot of work into it, you know. (laughs) <laughs> it's just like, oh, oh, Hugh, oh, dear. Oh, oh, Easy, oh, steady on. He's a very charming gentleman. Anyway. He <laughs> is indeed. So, for the first season, producers were fearful of alienating new audiences adjusted to the mythology. Even the first journey to another planet beyond Earth didn't take place until season two. 
which is unusual considering the you know universe trotting nature of the original series and the fact that like you know he's an alien so yeah they didn't go off planet earth for the first season because they were just like i mean it's already a bit much that he's got a blue box that flies about and he's also from the north but also an alien you know i mean i can see why they made that decision but i thought it was quite interesting yeah that was that was one of the things they got criticized for a lot where it was where they'd say hey you know the doctor seems to hang around earth an awful lot doesn't seem to go anywhere else um but you do like by, by the second episode you do get to see tons and tons of different aliens when they're sort of watching the watching the sun explode you know russell t davis they're like doctor who lives and dies by its its aliens you know and they in that first episode when you look back on it it's like with the first episode rose it's a little on the shonky side it's a the the cgi doesn't quite mm. look like it's it's there yet you i mean know? it's um, i remember what i remember first watching it especially cgi wise and being like Ooh, like at the time, I was just like, "This is quite mm. cool for like a BBC series." It's not, it's not unlike, it's unlike anything I've seen before. You know, watching it back, it's a little yeah, bit so janky. I, it's a little bit janky. <laughs> yeah, I saw the first episode, then I went away to do Camp America for the rest of the summer and didn't see any more of that first series. You know, and oh. it wasn't until I had the the continued sort of pressure from my friend Natalie, who's been on the podcast a few times, and she was like, no, you've got to watch a show. You've got to watch it, got to watch it, got to watch it. Mm. So I started with David Tennant. Well, just as a slight aside, one of my favourite ever previews for a television show was for the newest, the, the, the first, re, you know, the first comeback New Who season with Christopher Eccleston. Mm-hmm. And it's just him running down a tunnel with a big fire behind him. I know, right? Like, so just that tiny cool. little bit of trailer. Do you want to come with me? Because if yeah, you yeah. do, I should warn you. Yeah. You know, it it's won't just, be quiet and it won't be kind. Won't you know, be it's safe. just yeah, it won't be safe. I'll tell yeah, you what, it will be trip, of a, trip of a lifetime. Yeah, oh, like, it's so good. Straight up, how many times do you just remember just the advert for a show? You know, that is it, Dude, it's saying I, something. I remember, that, I remember that, that show had so much attitude just from its promos. You know, I, I watched, I watched that trailer again on YouTube, and I found myself just watching it over and over, thinking, "This is yeah. bloody great!" <laughs> you know, like, you know, it's, yeah. it's so encap- it's so captivating, and oh, I love it. Yeah. Loved it. Anyway, so, uh, so this one's uh, to do with the Satan Pit, which is one of the episodes we'll be talking about today. Awesome. Due to the shooting schedule, especially the fact that all the episodes with the Cybermen needs to be shot together. I don't know why that is, but I'm sure we... I, I can imagine why, but I don't know why for sure. Uh, this episode was shot closest to its air date. Combined with the immense amount of CGI work needing this episode, the production staff was concerned about finishing it by the air date, and, in fact, were unable to provide a preview tape to the media as they usually did, which prompted speculation that they did not release a preview because of some big plot-based secret, which there wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> they, just, they, were just, they were just down to the wire, you know, so... Yeah. I imagine the CGI guys on the mill just sort of furiously tapping away, going, okay, all right, go on, take it then, fine. Okay, 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 we're nearly there, nearly there with the Satan, nearly there with the Satan, we got the Satan, great, let's go. (laughs) You know, just, I can't imagine putting that together, it must have been, it must have been very stressful. Yeah. Um, so this is to CGI do with... holds up though for that episode. We were, I was watching it though. Oh, yeah. Recently, it's like you're looking at this thinking it's not bad actually. I, it, um, I think the thing that they did, did themselves a favour with is they gave themselves lots of shadows to work with. Yeah. So you know, definitely. like they didn't make it super brightly lit. They made it really ominous and you know, sort of. It, it just oh, it's so good. I loved that episode because I was just like, that's literally the devil, lads. You know what I mean? Like, I was just like, oh my god, that's so cool, you know. And this one's from God Complex. One of the rooms seen is the, called the, the Pasiphae Spa. And I might be butchering the, pronunci- the pronunciation of that. Uh, in Greek mythology, the mother of the Minotaur is called Pasiphae, 
the monster in this episode is modelled after the Minotaur. Listen, we need to decide right now. Are we doing Minotaur or Minotaur? I've always called it the Minotaur. Like, since then, because I don't know why. I don't know what the correct mm-hmm. pronunciation is. I, it's just how I've always called, how I've always said it. Yeah, I've always gone with with Minotaur. So listen, we're going to use it interchangeably, and mm-hmm. if there are any ancient Greeks who take offence, then <laughs> they're already dead, so they can get stuffed. Yeah, <clears throat> screw them. Okay. I didn't mean. I didn't mean it. It wasn't my fault. Lovely. Thank you for those, Phil. They were brilliant. They really made me smile. Listen. Awesome. I'm not going to lie, but I think we really went top shelf for this week's guest. Somebody I've known a long time and somebody who is, is absolutely living his best life and doing his dream job. I'm not going to say any more. I'm going to let him introduce himself. Hello, my name's Chris Chapman uh, and I'm, I'm a fair few things, but I am principally a massive Doctor Who nerd uh, and that has manifested itself in my adult life as I make... Doctor Who documentaries for the DVD and Blu-ray range. I've made uh, coming up to 60 documentaries for the BBC looking at different parts of Doctor Who's evolution and history. Uh, And I've ended up writing for Big Finish who do Doctor Who full cast audio plays with with all the surviving Doctors really. So I've written about 10 different stories for Peter Davison and Colin Baker and Tom Baker and... uh, and so basically, I'm kind of living a nerdish dream I've had since I was about seven years old. Chapman, thank you so much for joining us today. So let's jump straight into it. Can you tell us a little bit about how Doctor Who came to be? Yeah, a good comparison is if you think about Star Trek and the way that Star Trek came together, and you've basically got Gene Roddenberry is like the king of Star Trek, and it was his baby, his inspiration that kind of started that world. Doctor Who is not like that. You know, Doctor Who is devised by committee. Mm. So basically, you have a Canadian called Sidney Newman, who was who's this pioneering kind of ideas guy who comes over from Canada and, first of all, starts starts working for ABC. And, and basically, he gets brought headhunted over to the BBC and told very early on, we've got this slot, like about 5.20 in the afternoon in between Grandstand and jukebox jury we're kind of putting on these kids classic serials at the moment like old dickens and stuff and we want something that feels a bit fresher and that was music to sydney's ears he he was all about big new crazy ideas and basically he starts having he starts organizing these meetings between a chap called donald wilson a, a young writer called, called c bunny weber and a couple of other guys all kind of sit down and start to bash out what this could be starts with okay well uh, how about it's a, a series of serials it starts off as a mature man in his 40s with a character twist i think that's literally the line that they use to describe this this character <laughs> so it's the, the, the vaguest of the vague but he's got a time machine naturally and this gradually evolves into okay he's an alien and he's somehow on the run or separate from his people there's a lot of debate over who comes up with the police box thing it may have been anthony coburn who, who ends up writing the first serial. But it all comes together in this kind of really, uh, in a way that nobody can quite say who came up with what. Because you've got <laughs> about five or six people all sitting around going, hey, what about this? As much as you can say one person had a spark, it's probably mm-hmm. Sidney Newman. But then that's developed, that, that egg is sat on by loads of different people. And ultimately then, when the show starts to come together and be made, you have Verity Lambert coming in as the show's first producer. And Verity really then steers it and develops it herself into something. Sydney devised it really as a, as a 
an educational show, mm. the Doctor would travel to historical places. And very early on, he goes he goes and meets Marco Polo and Kublai Khan, and it's and it's a good educational program for kids. But Verity was commissioning people like Terry Nation to write stories about these things called Daleks. And Sidney Newman would read this and go, what is this? I didn't want bug-eyed monsters. I didn't want that. But then the Daleks are a massive hit. Yeah. The shape of the show kind of changes for the first time, really, from an educational show almost immediately into a show that can do history, but it can do monsters and scares and adventure. So that links me to my next question is, how has it evolved over the past 58 years then? I think the interesting thing to think about is how the Doctor as a character has evolved. Because as I say, when Mm -hmm. the Doctor arrives and William Hartnell plays him, he's very mysterious. You know he's an alien. You know he's old, but how old? Not sure. He's got a granddaughter. That's weird. Is he married? Has he got kids? Don't know. You really don't know much more than that. He's got a TARDIS that travels in time and space. But as far as you know, that's the only one in existence. And it's kind of alluded to that he and his granddaughter may have created that TARDIS, may have have developed, devised that TARDIS. Uh, And it's not until 1965 that you meet another member of the Doctor's race. You meet Peter Butterworth from the Carry On films, comes in and plays the the meddling monk. And he's got a TARDIS. And people are like, holy, wow, somebody else has got a TARDIS. But we don't name the race. We don't know what a, nobody knows what a Time Lord is yet. And it's not until 66 that the Doctor dies. (laughs) And then, and then his face changes and he becomes Patrick Troughton. Nobody's saying regeneration. That word doesn't exist yet. It won't exist for a long while. And then he starts talking more openly about being hundreds and hundreds of years old. And, and it's not until 1969 that we meet the Time Lords, that we hear the word Time Lord for the first time. It's not until 1970 when John Pertwee joins that we learn he's got two hearts. And in 1971, we meet the Master. In 1974, we learn that his home planet's called, called Gallifrey. In 1976, we learn allegedly that Time Lords, you know, can change their face 12 times, so have 13 regenerations. The, the number of regenerations is only ever brought up when somebody's breaking that rule, from what I've seen. It's just as a show, it's kept evolving the character. So when people say, this is what the Doctor is, mm-hmm. you know, when people say the Doctor's a man... It's kind of ridiculous, really, because the show has shown us again and again, this can be whatever it wants to be, this programme. And I think the thing that the other side of that evolution that I'm always fascinated with is Doctor Who has has plotted a course through the evolution of television. So when Doctor Who begins in 63, you know, television is more like theatre, certainly in the UK, where things have only really just stopped being uh, broadcast live. And it's more like theatre. And Doctor Who very gradually evolves away from theatre, just as television did in the UK, towards film. I think Doctor Who's a really interesting way of... It's a good entry drug to learn about the evolution of British television, which is really different to American television when you think Twilight Zone is already looking like a movie, Mm -hmm. uh, and so Star Trek. Star Trek's far more like a movie than than theatre. So I think Doctor Who's evolved in that way massively as well. You can't diminish that evolution it goes through in 2005, Mm -hmm. that amazing moment when Russell T. Davis brings the show back. And and all those elements that that a a fan like me would say, all those elements of heart and, and joy and humour and scares all mixed together, I would say all those elements are seeded and would have inspired Russell when he was watching it. But Russell really crystallises it together and says, I want Doctor Who to be the best possible version of itself. Mm-hmm. And that instantly makes a show that is incredibly popular in a way that we've been wanting it to be for about 
20 or 30 years before that, really. So That feeling when something you love is finally cool and everybody else is finally on board with it. Yeah. I mean, some people get kind of weird and kind of gatekeepy mm. about this and don't want new fans to come in and like, oh, have you not watched The Web Planet? And <laughs> I'd been the only kid in my secondary school who, who knew what Doctor Who, cared mm-hmm. about Doctor Who. And suddenly you were surrounded by people who, you know, you'd go into a shop, you'd go into just a normal shop and they'd be selling Doctor Who action figures. And before we had to go to like a museum in North Wales in order to, to get our Doctor, you know, it would be an elaborate uh, love to have and, and I was, I remain overjoyed to see it successful. It continues to move and change. I'm sure it will surprise us again in the future too. Chapman, that is absolutely awesome. I feel like I could talk to you for ages and ages, but I'll have to save it for another time. Listen, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Okay, Phil, that was Chapman. What did you think? I just wish I was living his life, to be honest with you. That just sounds so much fun. Imagine that yeah. being your job. like Especially yeah. writing for Big Finish as well. Like That's that's super cool. That, that dude absolutely cool. knows his onions. <laughs> Chapman get, started getting mentioned in Doctor Who magazine, and it kind of got a little bit boring, if I'm honest. It's, oh, there he is again. Oh, God, what's that's he going Chapman. on about now? <laughs> there, there's me, mate, just being... Dead successful as usual. <laughs> Fine. I'm not crying. You're crying. <laughs> but yeah, it's, no, it's it. wonderful to hear somebody who is incredibly knowledgeable and incredibly passionate about their subject, isn't it? Yeah, it, it was really nice to listen to him talk about it. Like, all of it. It just he seems like he's living and breathing the dream. You know, that's just yeah. so great to see. Anyway, now it is time for... <gasps> Finding the Faith in the Film. Ta-da, yeah, awesome source. So, how much fun how for much fun. this particular project? We couldn't hope to look at all of Doctor Who comprehensively. So, for this episode, we're going to be looking at the Russell T. Davis, Stephen Moffat era, and that's not because we don't like classic Doctor Who or that we don't love Jodie Whittaker's Doctor. It's just I had to go where the inspiration took me, and the first place it took me was, as Phil already mentioned, uh, the Satan Pit. Uh, the season two episode with David Tennant and Rose. Um, mm-hmm. I was talking to Chapman about this um, a little bit uh, off the off mic, and he said something that I thought summed it up my point quite nicely. He said, "The classic Who approach to religion in new and old series alike is that the Doctor has a long track record of revealing the gods of various places are in fact meddling aliens or robots or whatever." Yeah. Um, which is the sort of thing you'd see in, in Star Trek. The false god trope is something we see quite a lot. Mm. But he also said, the Doctor's always been a man of science, and yet stories like the Satan Pit confound him from time to time and show him things even he can't explain. And this is something yeah. I, I particularly loved. I thought was really, really interesting. Just for those that you don't know, the Sa- the impossible planet and the Satan Pit starts off as a fairly standard thing of the Doctor being besieged in a base where sort of enemies are coming in and they're trapped. And in this particular case, it's the Ood who are being mind controlled by something calling itself the Beast. And there's one point where they are talking to the beast through the Ood. They're on this planet that is orbiting a black hole, but not getting sucked in because reasons. Um, So the doctor says to the beast via the Ood, how did you end up on this rock? And the beast says, the disciples of light rose up against me and chained me in the pit for all eternity. When was this? And then the beast says, before time. The doctor (laughs) replies, what does before time mean? Before time and light and space and matter. Before the cataclysm, before this universe was created. That's impossible. No life could have existed back then. Is that your religion? It's a belief. 
And obviously what's really interesting there is this is one of the few times that the Doctor doesn't have all the answers. And mm. he even ends the episode mm. not knowing what it is, you know? That was mm. my favourite bit that they left there's that a, ambiguous. A bit, yeah, there's a, a bit where right at the end where Rose says, what do you re- really think it was? And then the Doctor goes, I think we beat it. And that's good enough for me. I just don't want to it's... ever see that thing ever again, to be honest, Rose. It were massive. Yeah. You weren't down there. <laughs> it's an incredibly bold choice, especially to see a character so heavily grounded in science be quite, I think, visibly shaken by seeing a figure so strongly linked to religion. And mm. in the one sense, obviously, if you follow the scientific method, if there's something you don't understand, that's fine you don't have to explain it away you literally just say that's a thing that i don't get yet but mm-hmm. it's interesting to to watch him because he he obviously ascribes the scientific method in that aspect he says there's a thing we saw the thing i don't know what it is i don't know what it means but it's obviously shakes his entire ideology and i found that fascinating yeah. when it okay. comes to the beast it's almost in the same vein as what we would describe as satan for all you know yeah. him talking about being before time before the cataclysm he could just be lying and that's something that satan does quite yeah. a lot so you know it's it's yeah. even if he is lying it's still in keeping with the way that we perceive satan to be in terms of what kind of being he is and you know I think that's Do you know that's fascinating because obviously you know I tend to come at things from a Christian perspective you give him the atheist perspective on this where you could just you can just hand wave it away and say well he was lying he knew that the phrase before time would freak out the doctor so he said before time to to put the doctor on the back foot that's an entirely valid uh, way of seeing it it's mm-hmm. not the way i strictly see it but i think it's i think it's brilliant that this brings me to, to the point that I, I wanted to get onto. i wanted to take on a slightly more um metatextual approach here because i wanted mm-hmm. to talk about my man russell t davis okay good old um, russ t now <laughs> yeah now big russell as i like to imagine he's called <laughs> that's probably his street name probably his street i mean name, the yeah. dude is <laughs> The dude's incredibly tall, you know? He's like seven foot tall, scrapes his head on ceilings. I want to believe that he's known just around the sets as like, ah, Russ, or something like that, you know? Well, when Russell Tovey was on Doctor Who, they would have little things like, Big Russell wants to talk to Little Russell and stuff like that, so I'm not entirely making it up, you know? There's so many things that could be said about that that are not appropriate. Yeah. I love Russell T. Davis for a great many reasons. Uh, not only that um, he's Welsh and we have the same birthday, uh, are two of the oh, most prominent reasons cool. I can think of. That's but interestingly, cool. he is probably one of the most outspokenly atheist of British showrunners. Yeah, I read the I read the book um, The Writer's Tale, which is like a it's a, an entire book sort of focused around the series four and the specials. Um, yeah. where it's a correspondence between him and Ben Cook, who's a, a Doctor Who Monthly writer. And he said something to the effect of that you need to go on the offensive when it comes to defending your beliefs. You you need to be on the front foot. You need to you need to be sort of almost quite aggressive in, in showing people what you believe. So as a result, throughout almost all of Big Russell's work, you see <laughs> Wales, homosexuality and atheism being promoted quite heavily. And to be clear... I am thoroughly in favor of a person being able to use their platforms to promote their beliefs. Within reason, obviously, but like all of those things, like, yeah, okay, whales, awesome. LGBTQ issues, awesome. And atheism, well, okay. I mean, it's difficult to sit through. Each to their own. (laughs) (laughs) 
I mean, it's, sometimes it's a little bit it's a little bit obtrusive when there's a, a Torchwood episode and it says, oh, we've got to hunt down this alien. Oh, and by the way, there's no God. You're like, yeah, they did right. seem to push. They seemed to push that quite a lot, didn't they? Especially that episode yeah. where um, they, they had that glove that could bring people back from the dead or something. Yeah. And um, and they were and they did. One of them comes back and is like, "It's just black. It's just darkness." Yeah, and I'm like, "Bloody nothing. hell! Yeah. That's a bit it's much, like, isn't right. it?" You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I know. I'm, I know I'm an atheist, but like you know, I, I, there's some <laughs> stuff you don't. Want, there's some stuff you don't want to bloody well think about. You know what I mean? And when you start, it's when you like, get it shoved in like your having, face, you're just like, "Crime, any? That's yeah. a lot." It's like having Richard Dawkins reading bedtime stories to your kids, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, basically, yeah. It's also great for kids' parties, I've heard. You know, it's just one of those things. It's like, you don't do it. But I don't know. That, the that had a bit of an issue with that episode. Who doesn't exist. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, anyway, God. I think RTD is low-key amazing and, and is low-key responsible for almost single-handedly improving LGBTQ representation in sci-fi. Um, mm-hmm. If you if you think about it, like, you had Captain Jack Harkness, who is a, an openly bisexual character, who is just absolutely macho and really cool and had yeah. an awesome coat and i yes. also have that coat as well you know so of course well of course you see you coats coats feature prominently in uh, in my love for things but what's fascinating is that whilst promoting atheism so strongly davis has absolutely created a messiah figure in the 10th doctor so let's mm. look at last of the time lords okay okay where What's happened is the master has used a laser screwdriver. He has aged the doctor up to the point where he's impossibly old and he's kept him in a cage all this time. Martha has managed to escape and the the belief is there was some kind of gun that could kill the master and they needed to assemble all the parts. And then Martha reveals that the actual plan, the actual plot resolution hangs on everyone thinking about the Doctor at the same time because Mm. she's gone around the world, travelled the world like a disciple sharing the Gospel of TARDIS, essentially encouraging people to pray to the Doctor. And because there's a psychic network from the Archangel Network, then all of a sudden, if everybody all thinks about the Doctor at the same time, then not only is he able to revert to his younger, handsomer form... But he develops <laughs> telekinesis and he develops the ability to fly because... Yeah, it's, it's, <clears throat> it couldn't be any more on the nose that if it tried, could it really? You know what I mean? It's That's just that's just a straight up messiah like sort of parallel. Absolutely. Like, to the hilt. And to be honest, yeah. I wouldn't mind it if people all prayed to me and I started being able to fly and have telekinesis. I'd get so much done. The washing yeah. up would be a breeze. It'd be brilliant. <laughs> That's perhaps the most showy example of the Doctor as a Messiah, but it's not the most enduring uh, example. Because if you think about it, whilst the Doctor definitely started life as a grouchy old man, there are definitely aspects of Jesus in the modern iteration. So if mm-hmm. you think about it, he's got wisdom, a really strong commitment to non-violence, a propensity for picking up followers in the strangest of places and solving problems in pretty miraculous ways. So... Yeah, yeah, true, yeah. (laughs) Whether he likes it or not, Russell T. Davis might not believe in Jesus, but he's certainly done a lot to perpetuate Jesus' values, you know? He he believes in the Doctor, that's for certain. So coming back to the last of the Time Lords, the first thing that the Doctor says to the Master after he's defeated him 
is to say, I forgive you. Yeah. <laughs> like, this dude just <laughs> has literally taken over the world and just committed genocide. And the first the first words about his mouth is, I forgive you. He doesn't care about what he's done. He doesn't care that the master is demonstrably the most evil person on earth. He loves him like a brother and he forgives him instantly. Yeah. And easily and i loved that even as somebody who who isn't grounded in faith in the same way it's nice to see it's, it's a good example i yeah. think you know <clears throat> you can you can learn a lot from the way that the doctor in certain iterations carries himself and and conducts himself when he's going around gallivanting saving the world and stopping people from i don't know trying to kill everybody on earth which apparently a lot of people want to do so and that's the thing i find know. fascinating that an atheist essentially has created quite unironically a christ figure in fiction it's yeah it's, it's amazing some, that really isn't it you don't get it uh, that often mm-hmm. anyway by the time stephen moffat's tenure as doctor who showrunner started this messiah level of worship of the doctor clearly got too much for moffat so there's a very gentle resetting of expectations he reiterates that he's just a madman in the in a box and the doctor even says in the wedding of river song i got too big too noisy Time to step back into the shadows. And it's at this point that a lot of the Messiah comparisons begin to dry up. The show becomes more concerned with what Stephen Moffat is interested in, namely Scotland, ginger people, and being married to someone who is by any measure your equal, if not your better in some parts. You know, (laughs) essentially the marriage between Riversong and the Doctor is pretty much the template for how I base my own marriage. You know, I pretty much (laughs) feel like I married a superhero who is absolutely awesome. Oh, by the way, just so we're clear, in this analogy... I'm River Song and Claire's the Doctor because she is such a badass. And, yeah, no, uh, I, I, I was gonna say like I think that I'm, I'm perceiving that as that way around, and I'm hoping I'm yeah. correct. <laughs> There's one or two bits I want to talk about in the Stephen Moffat era, mainly the episode uh, God Complex. Mm-hmm. That's the one where they end up in a really kitsch '80s hotel, and yep. it's filled with their own all their own fears in the rooms. And there's also spoiler alert a Minotaur that just walks around feeding on people's faith to sustain himself. So <laughs> oh, what they do here is similar to in The Curse of Fenric, which I think is a seventh Doctor story, where mm-hmm. the action of having faith in and of itself is the important thing. This is a really handy get-out for a sci-fi writer, and it's done really beautifully here. Mm. But I also kind of think that this idea of faith is kind of putting the cart before the horses. Because in some Christian circles, people can equate having faith in Jesus to being more important than Jesus himself. It's like saying, if I love this person enough, then they'll do nice things for me. So like, Mm. obviously, Jesus wants you to have faith in him, but he doesn't need you to have faith in him. Jesus literally healed some people who had no faith in him because they were dead. It's not a... It yeah. is not a prerequisite for him. Do you know he's, what I mean? He's not got any terms. You know? yeah. yeah. It's he's healed he healed sort of non believers, he healed people who had no idea who he was. It's not like a perks of a membership thing. Um, <laughs> I, need so to, the, I need to renew the, my the God membership. Side, <laughs> yeah. That's so the flip side. What I'm trying to say is that you have no control over mm-hmm. whether you get healed or something. And crucially, if you take if if any of my sort of uh, Christian listeners are listening at this point, the one thing I want you to take is take away from this is if you're carrying around some chronic illness or injury and God hasn't healed you yet, that is not a reflection on you. Have more faith is not the answer to this problem. It's one of those things. It's there are still things that just can't be explained, and it's not their fault. It's not your fault. 
at the end of the day yeah. that that's happened. And You've not done anything wrong. <laughs> as as somebody who who walks around with a, a sort of disability, a fairly invisible disability for the last sort of twenty something years, this sort of sense of well, I've not been healed, so maybe I don't have enough faith. Maybe I'm not special enough. That can start to possibly poison your mm. relationship with God after a while, because you start to think that all the miracles, all the all the really important stuff, that's for those guys over there. That's for those guys who really believe. You know, yeah, those, it's, it's, that's for people who are really walking with God, and it yeah. can it can really eat away at you. It's obviously very different for me because for me it's more of a case of I just believe in the look of the draw. You you may get ill or you may not get ill. Yeah. You may be the healthiest person on the planet and still get ill and die from that illness, perhaps, or be crippled for it for by it forever, or you may have been born with it and you might not you might not get over it. It's not out of any kind of malice it's yeah. it's just that's just how the world can be sometimes yeah the the thing that carries on from that is that just at least from my perspective just because bad things happen just because there are illnesses that aren't cured doesn't mean that god doesn't exist just because mm-hmm. things aren't rosy for you doesn't mean that that god isn't still in control yeah so yep. i want to talk about the god complex a bit more toby whithouse who was the he was a showrunner for a show called being human which was awesome and he yeah, wrote the, the god complex and um he wanted to illustrate examples of faith besides the purely religious so you've got joe associated with luck howie with conspiracy theories but he still intended to include a prominent and sympathetic figure who would exhibit a more traditional faith in God. Although Whithouse was not particularly religious himself, what he wanted to do would, would be to sort of buck the often cynical trend in modern fiction or portray of portraying devout individuals in a negative light. So yeah. he considered having the character be a Christian, but felt it would be much more interesting to portray a different religion, inspiring yeah. Rita's adherence to Islam. Now, there's two things there. First of all, it does happen a lot. People who believe in God are obviously credulous to, to an extent. Yeah. So that often can translate as gullible and yeah. because we have beliefs that have at their core not changed for about 2000 years we also get portrayed as dogmatic so that we're unable to sort of change unable to adapt unable to sort of weigh up the the pros and cons of a situation yeah so I get you. to see somebody who believes in something but it's also they're also cool they're also smart there's that line where where she comes in and she's she's working everything out she's the clever one and then the doctor says to amy with regret you're fired you know i'm kidding like he wants, he wants <laughs> yeah no i quite new, like that new <laughs> like sorry amy so there's, there's, she's an to it. there's an aspect to it where it's like how can I put it? It's like game recognized game. So <laughs> as a devout Christian, I absolutely love devout Muslims. Like you probably want to convert me and I probably want to com- convert you. But in the meantime, I think there's a kinship that can be developed when you're in a committed relationship with just the one divine being. It just helps you to respect people, I think, in a certain way. Yeah, you know? no, I like that. Like you, you've got you've got beliefs, and I've got beliefs. We're both believing pretty hard right now. But you know what? We're both also doing really well because we're both very good human beings. So kudos to you. Last parallel I wanted to talk about was actually in the Peter Capaldi era. I think it's possibly like the maybe the end of his first season. So spoilers, obviously. But after Danny Pink has been killed, um, mm-hmm. Clara wants to force the doctor to take him back in time in order to save Danny because you would wouldn't you you know so yeah. she takes him to she sort of knocks him out takes him to like a volcano planet and basically throws away keys to the TARDIS so that he'll be he has to save Danny or he'll be trapped and yeah. they get out of that situation the doctor over overcomes her obviously but then he says he's going to break all his rules and he's going to do it anyway so Clara says to him you're going to help me and the doctor says well why wouldn't I help you because of what I did, I just 
You betrayed me. You betrayed my trust. You betrayed our friendship. You betrayed everything. You let me down. Clara says, then why are you helping me? Why? Do you think that I care for you so little that betraying me would make a difference? And I still get yeah. goosebumps when I just hear that line. Peter Capaldi me, had some mm, delicious lines. Mm, that line is amazing because what that is saying is there's nothing you could do to me that would make me love you any less. That's yeah. that's unconditional love right there. And I feel like, talking about betrayal, I feel like that's exactly what Jesus would have said to Judas if he just had the chance. If Judas had been able to hang on a little bit longer, then they would have been able to reconcile. And the way we see Judas would have been somebody who did the wrong thing, but it was a necessary yeah. wrong thing and the rest of it. And the best example, the best parallel I can give you is Simon Peter. I don't know if you remember... I think we've probably talked about this. How Peter um, denies uh, Jesus three times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm very, I'm, I'm familiar with that. Yeah. So there's this one bit after Jesus has come back. He's been resurrected, and he's literally sort of cooking people breakfast on the side of the uh, the shore of Galilee, right? And Peter has totally, whilst Jesus was away, or whilst Jesus was away, whilst Jesus was dead, um, has been totally freaked out. He's just gone. Back <laughs> whilst he was away, because he doesn't. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, just gone butlins. Um, <clears throat> he's Jesus. Kind of Peter. Kind of freaked out, and he just kind of went back to fishing because he didn't really know what else to do. You know. So anyway, John twenty one fifteen to seventeen. When they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, "Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? As in, do you love me more than these guys here love me? Because you said you love me more than anybody else. You know. <laughs> yes, Lord. He said, "You know that I love you." Jesus said feed my lambs again jesus said simon son of john do you truly love me he answered yes lord you know that i love you jesus answered take care of my sheep the third time he said to him simon son of john do you love me and peter was hurt because jesus asked him the third time do you love me he said lord you know all things you know that i love you and jesus said feed my sheep and it's interesting that because it's like it's a very gentle rebuke. Three yeah. times Peter gets asked, do you know Jesus? He's like, no, nothing to do with me. When when everything was good, Simon Peter could have been like one of the eldest of the, the disciples. And when I say eldest, he still could have been about 20, potentially. He has this very gentle rebuke of, so do you love me? Do you really love me though? No, but actually, do you love me? And it's yeah. just that... Yeah, no messing, it, do you? <laughs> yeah. Feed my, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. And he's not... Jesus isn't doing it to be cruel at this point he's not doing it to to prove a point or anything he's just trying to say look this thing happened i need you to be stronger than that because i need you to feed my sheep i need you to look after these guys when i'm not here you know yeah, and it's just a, a really look after the flock yeah it's a really gentle example of just of talking to somebody after they've after they've betrayed you so anyway that yeah, is it that you. is our uh, that is our finding the film section um, yay <laughs> awesome to have one of those back in first Sweet. time we will leave it there for today guys it has been lovely to be back our next episode yes. is going to be on Broadchurch the awesome. ITV show also starring David Tennant so you might start to notice a theme developing there we, we, uh, we, 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 we kind of like that guy so yeah we hope you can no join deal. us for that for that one as well Phil have you had a good time always it's great to be back it is great to be back we will see you guys soon Gordon Film is hosted and created by Giles Goff and Phil Coleman mixing by Phil editing by Giles our logo was designed by Julie Walsh and our theme tune was composed by Rick Lee 
Waffle Editing by Natalie Austin. Gordon Film is a Dask production. Please rate and review. Unless it's a one star, in which case, prize open the central console, stare into the time vortex, and psychically send us a scattered message throughout the space-time continuum. We guarantee to give you a response in three to five working eons.